God is a speaking God. That's what the Bible tells us. And that's why every week we come and we take some time to listen to God's word, uh, both read and preached. And here to read God's word, Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 to 48 is Mark. Our reading today is from Matthew 5, verses 38 to 48. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Dan McDonald. I'm um, one of the pastors here at Grace Toronto, and uh, I am speaking to you on a wet, rainy day that feels like early March. I don't know what happened to early summer, but we're really in early spring. But I'm glad to be here with you. And I want to talk to you today about who we are and who we're called to be. We live in a culture of justice, retaliation, and revenge. I was watching an episode of Suits last night and noticed that in court cases, litigation lawyers try to make their own witnesses look amazing and the other side's witnesses look completely not credible. It's a vicious fight and it's a kind of an exaggerated uh, way that they act in these litigation moments. But then when the case is over, they take off their robes because everyone knows it's an act and they start acting like normal human beings again. <laughs> Uh, except right now in our modern moment, I feel like we're living through a scene of suits because the kind of behavior we're seeing in everyday life is what we were seeing in those courtroom scenes on TV. Road rage is way up. People have killed each other over how they drive. Social media shaming and demonizing and polarizing discussions on cultural and political debates are ubiquitous. We have become a culture that is divisive, dangerous and filled with a breeding sense of anger and injustice. What's going on? Well, let me suggest a couple of things seem to be happening at the same time. First, and I think this is the most obvious one, uh, scientifically, is that we are hardwired for justice. An influential study of human behavior in 2004 by a bunch of Swiss researchers, including Dominique de Carvin, indicates that it is actually part of human DNA to thirst for and be satisfied by justice, even to allow yourself to incur financial or economic cost to see justice done. Matter of fact, the desire to see justice done, what they call altruistic punishment, is proving to be a better predictor of human behavior than individual 
self-interest. Interesting. We're hardwired for justice. There's another thing that seems to be going on, and that is in our present secular moment, which believes that this life is the only one we get, it has intensified the search for justice into a fierce, urgent need to get perfect justice done now. That urgency seems to be greater than in previous generations. So the result of these two things seems to be that justice is becoming more personal. People are feeling the personal need to see and meet out justice personally, to violate, I mean, to punish violators, taking into our own hands more and more the need to fulfill justice. Whether it be social media shaming, road rage, or whatever, we're beginning to see a society embedded, filled with the sense of retaliation and revenge. We don't have any way of understanding right now. Someone like Merti. Merti is an Indonesian. He grew up in a a church-going home, went to Bible school. He's Indonesian, in Indonesia. But he went to Bible school to cover up dealing drugs. There he got caught dealing drugs, sent to jail, and in jail he became a Christian. After he got out, he decided that he wanted to tell other people about Jesus as he became friends with them. So he became friends with some people. It's a primarily non-Christian country. And some people of a Muslim background began to talk to him about Christianity. And they asked him to come and have a deeper discussion at another place. But what he didn't know was they and other people were ready to beat him up. And so he was, he was thrown down. He was punched repeatedly. And he realized in the heat of the moment that he had two choices. He could either retaliate or he could bear their punches. He allowed himself to be beaten. And this is what he said, it would only hurt my Christian witness to push back, to punch back. So he refrained. He eventually found a moment and escaped them. But we don't understand that kind of thinking. But Jesus does. And here in this passage, in perhaps one of the most difficult passages in all of the New Testament to clearly understand, Jesus is inviting you and me, wherever we are in our journey of faith, to a different way of living, a different way of loving. Because here, in his teaching to his disciples, Jesus invites the world into a way of loving that is deeper and wider than our present way of loving and living. So we're going to look at these two commands of Jesus for his followers, to love people more deeply and to love people more widely than we actually believe possible or tend to do. And then... We're going to ask the question, why is he asking us to do it? Because this standard that he has here is so demanding, so difficult for us, that we're going to have to locate these commands in the larger purposes of Jesus in this moment to understand what he's calling us to do. So let's look firstly at what he's calling us to do, to love people more deeply and widely, and then why he's asking us to do it, what it actually means. So look at the first paragraph. Let's start with where I said we'd start. Jesus calls us to love people more deeply. That's the first paragraph you read. So he says, um, when you are um, uh, hit on the cheek, left cheek, uh, right cheek from the right hand of someone, let it go by, turn the other cheek. Uh, When someone uses their judicial leverage to take a a shirt from you, give them your cloak. And when someone who's a Roman soldier asks you to carry his gear for a mile, do it a second mile. These three examples, Jesus says, to deliberately scandalize us. Because what has happened is, 
In the Jewish time of Jesus' day, the Jewish scribes and Pharisees had begun to confuse and distort the actual message of the gospel. You see, in the Old Testament, there was a principle of public justice. And the principle was this, proportional, um, proportional justice. If an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, the degree of the crime determines the degree of punishment. Proportional justice. But that sense of proportional justice was built on a deeper, wider foundation, the Jewish ethic of love. The Shema says, and this is the great Jewish mantra, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Leviticus 19.18 says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus, summarizing the Old Testament law in all of its entirety, says these two pillars, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. These two are the private ethic of love that undergirds the whole Old Testament. Private ethic of love. God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Private ethic of loving your neighbor. And on top of that, public sense of proportional justice for public judicial proceedings. But what did the scribes and Pharisees do in Jesus' day? They took that public sense of proportional justice and they turned it into a private ethic. You can do an eye for an eye in your private dealings with people. You can retaliate. You can take that kind of justice. As a matter of fact, they distorted the ethic of love to say, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. The Old Testament doesn't say that. It doesn't say in your private ethic, hate your enemy. And so Jesus is clearing away the confusion and going back to the Old Testament principles, but he's also going deeper. Because in these three examples, the Greek indicates these are three kind of summary commands that Jesus gives. A kind of exemplary summary of a whole idea of living and loving. Jesus is saying this. When someone slaps you with the back of their right hand on your right cheek, that is the most demeaning insult that can be given. Usually by someone who's of a socially higher class to someone who's a lower class. It's a demeaning, humiliating thing to do. Don't seek revenge. Turn the other cheek. When someone with judicial leverage over you has the ability to take everything you have, so the idea of of taking your tunic, that's the last thing you have. It's sort of the least thing you have. That means they've gotten everything from you. When they're literally down to you being naked except for this cloak, give them the cloak. Allow yourself to be naked. Now, in those days, you were never allowed to take someone's outer cloak. It was the last thing anyone was ever owned and it could never be taken away. Even in a lawsuit, you can't take that away. And Jesus says, give that away freely, unconditionally. Just like he said, turn the other cheek freely, unconditionally. Finally, Jesus says, if a Roman soldier taking advantage of Roman law, which says Roman military people in conquered colonies like Israel can conscript some Jewish citizen to take their gear for a thousand Roman steps, which is a Roman mile, wait a minute, if they use that advantage to oppress you, unconditionally, freely, offer them a second mile. Why? Because love and justice are different. Justice is proportional and conditional upon what has happened. Love is freely given and unconditional. It's above and beyond what is deserved. And so Jesus, and you need to hear this, nowhere in the Old Testament, nowhere in human history has this definition of love been deepened to this level. Love here is so 
dangerously vulnerable, so unconditional, so forgiving and gracious that it allows, does it not? Does it not even seem to invite you getting exploited, you being used as a doormat? Does it not foster injustice? I know I personally feel that way when I read these verses. I have a certain personality type. All my personality profiles say the same thing. I think I've been told I'm an Enneagram 8, which when I read online what that is, it basically means I'm a jerk. (laughs) No, it doesn't say that in the online presentations, but it does say this about Enneagram 8s, that we have an overactive sense of injustice. These verses really do bother me. We're going to get to that. But I want us all to sit in this for a moment. Feel the weight of the depth of love that Jesus is calling his people to. Before we figure out why Jesus is saying this, let's feel what he's saying to us. But he doesn't just deepen his definition of love to these unsearchable depths. He then goes on to widen it to seemingly unreachable wits. Because look at the the next part that he said. You've heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's how they had distorted the ethic of love. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's not only deepening the meaning of love, so it's forgiving, so it doesn't have retaliation and revenge and proportionality in it, that it's unconditional, freely given. He's also widening it. You see, the scribes and Pharisees had said, your enemies are outside the jurisdiction of the obligation to love and jesus says no your enemy does not my definition of neighbor includes enemies in fact this is one of the essential marks jesus says of becoming a christian and being a christian this is what distinguishes people who follow the true god and from people who follow other versions of god you may be sons of your father who is in heaven he says the true people of the true god are willing to even love forgive their enemies. He says, for if you love just those who love you, what reward do you have? And do not even tax collectors do the same. If, if you greet only your brothers, are, what are you doing that's more than others? Do not even the nations, the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people do these things. You therefore must be perfect. I'll get to that Greek word hopefully a little later. As your heavenly father is perfect. You hear what he's saying? This is how everybody else acts. Tax collectors are kind of morally bankrupt. The Gentiles, all the other nations, that's how they act. They love those who love them. They hate those who they're adversaries of. But this is what marks out the distinguishing marks of those who love the true God. They act like him because the true God gives rain. He blesses. He pours love out to those who love him and to those who don't, to those who believe in him and to those who believe in other gods. Sit now in that obligation. Jesus wants us to love everyone. It doesn't get wider than that. Our love is to be so deep as to scandalize people because it's, it's from such unconditional, gracious, forgiving, self-sacrificial, forbearance, generosity, and love that on a personal level, I'm not talking about public justice here, on a personal level, to people who even mistreat us, to people who demand too much of us, to people who despise us and manipulate us, even if they're our enemies, we're willing to love them and we're willing to go that deep. Crazy, isn't it? Why is Jesus saying this? Well, time only allows me, uh, I know this is online, so we need to be tighter. So time only allows me to sketch out in brief what I think is going on here. 
But what I'm, what I'm saying to you is this private ethic of Christians, firstly, is not the public administration of justice. I know you have many questions, but let me answer this first one, okay? Jesus is not saying that we are not supposed to advocate against sex slavery and, and work against it. And no, no, no. All Christians should be fighting for an end uh, to sex slavery. That is public justice. We should fight for it. Racism, sexism, same thing. We should fight for, advocate for, and hope to see legislation and judicial, uh, le- uh, judicial verdicts that end those things. We should fight for public justice in the public system. The valuing of life from beginning to end should be something all Christians should stand up for publicly and advocate for. Jesus is not telling us to ruin the justice system. Not even close. That's not why he's saying this. This is why he's saying this. I submit to you, Jesus is saying, he's calling us to this impractical, shocking, scandalous level of love, as deep and as wide as could be imagined. Because of who? And because of what? That points to. Because of who? And because of what? It points to. This is why Jesus asks it of us. Who it points to? It points to him. All commentators are agreed that what Jesus says here is so hard. What he's asking us to accept, this kind of mistreatment is particularly meant to point to him. Think about it. He says, we're called to allow ourselves to be slapped, to be publicly demeaned, despised, rejected, scorned, and humiliated. Guess what? At the end of his public ministry, who was publicly humiliated, rejected, scorned, slapped, no, beaten? tortured, whipped, Jesus himself. We're called to to allow ourselves to be stripped naked, give the cloak, the final piece of clothing we have, he says to the people in in those days. Well, who was stripped naked to be put on a cross? Who had every piece of clothing taken from them and then gambled away, actually? Public shame at its most intense, Jesus He calls his followers to carry the gear of a Roman soldier a thousand steps. Well, who carried the gear of Roman crucifixion? The heavy wood planks of the cross from the city of Jerusalem to the hill called Golgotha. It was Jesus. You see what he's saying? He's saying, I will fulfill what I have commanded. These words point to me. And then you see these last words of, his, of this passage where it says, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And we say, well, nobody's perfect. Well, that word actually means to its completed end. That's probably a better translation in one sense. Um, you, must, you must meet your completed end. But Jesus was perfect. He never sinned. And he went to his completed end. He went to the cross to die for your sin. And mind. We say nobody's perfect. We're right. All of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. But what did Jesus do? To people who were his enemies, who tortured him, who publicly shamed and rejected him, Jesus went to the cross to those who actively orchestrated his rejection, humiliation, torture, and death. What did he say when he was on the cross? Father, forgive them. For they do not know what they do. 
And in his death, he bore their guilt so they could be forgiven. Now think about that. Do these words and those actions sound like someone getting revenge on his enemies? Or is he breaking the cycle of retaliation and revenge and justice by bearing justice in himself? Is he treating his enemies, quote unquote, as enemies? No. He's treating them like beloved friends who don't get what they're doing. He's upending our categories of friend and enemy in doing this. For we know this, because Jesus died and rose again, and he told us what he was doing. He was dying for those enemies, for the purpose of turning those enemies into his beloved friends, brothers, and sisters. Romans chapter 5. Paul got it. He was an enemy of Christ and his church. And he finally realized Christ had died for him. And he says this, While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for those who are ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, although perhaps for a good person one might die. But God shows his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. That's what Paul says, what's happening here. So why did Jesus frame these commands this way? To point to someone, to point to himself, the one perfect person who actually lived in infinitely and precisely more loving ways. He lived this ethic of love. He loved his enemies infinitely. He gave his whole life for them, treating them like beloved neighbors. And he said these commands to those who would follow him so we would point people to him. But they don't just point to him. They point past Jesus to something else, to a new way of living and being that Jesus is bringing in. We said that in his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus changed his enemies into beloved friends, into people who adored him and followed him. That's exactly what happened. A lot of these enemies became his followers. and They defended, they told others about him, they, they witnessed to him, they died for him. And then Jesus is now saying to his people, this new way of being, this new way of living that I have inaugurated is called the kingdom of God. This way of living is kingdom living. A way of loving that initiated with God in his own character of love and grace that incarnated with Jesus, that inaugurated a kingdom. And then now we are being asked to imitate, to help spread that kingdom. It's a way of loving people that is so deep that it shocks them and reveals to them a better way to live. How shocked do you think a person would be if they struck you with their right hand and then you turned? And instead of retaliating or running, you gave them the other cheek. You know what that means? You can't hit me on that cheek anymore. You can't hit me right hand to right cheek, superior to inferior. I turn the other cheek and say, I'm your equal. Now hit me, equal to equal. I give you, as a privilege, the right to strike me unconditionally. It would shock them. It would, it would scan, it would shake them. Same thing with someone who taken every last part, you know, right to your shirt. And you go, you know what? You legally used your leverage to get that. Because in this context, that's what's connoted here. Some kind of economic and judicial leverage. But now I give you my cloak freely. You have no right to it. Equal to equal, I unconditionally offer you not what is due, not karma, not justice, grace. A way of loving that is so deep that says to the Roman soldier, I've given you the mile that I have to. 
Now I will give you the extra mile that I don't have to freely and unconditionally. I give you grace. I give you unconditional love because it has been given to me by Jesus Christ and because I'm bearing witness to a new kingdom, a new way of living and loving that has dawned in human history with the dying and rising of Jesus, a new era that has come, the day of the reign of grace, the day of the reign of the King of grace, Jesus Christ, in the hearts of his people. That day has begun. It hasn't fully come here yet. It it will be fully ushered in when Jesus returns and ushers in the renewal of all things. But there is um, an anticipated present incarnation of it in this moment of people living this new way. You know, we're in a delayed spring, as I mentioned when we began. Spring is when brown turns to green. The promise of summer is given in the budding and the beginning of flowers. But summer's not fully here yet. That's kind of what's happening here. Jesus ushered in an era of springtime in human history when the long winter of life under the tribal laws of retaliation and revenge and vengeance and honor and justice, the days of karma are over. And the springtime of grace and forgiveness and this kind of deep, forgiving, forbearing love has come. We're in that age, that final age, that what theologians call that eschatological age, the age before Jesus winds it all up and brings the eternal age to come. Summer's not fully here, but we, in, if we live this out, we tell the world summer's coming. Springtime is here. Come into the people of God. See how we treat each other. See how we treat enemies. And you should see these first fruits, these spring buds, of that coming era. So does this teaching preach pure nonviolence? What are we supposed to do with enemies? No, 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 no. I know time is fleeting. I know under TED Talk time, my time is over. But would you hold with me for one final thing? When you're deep in your love this way, to a kind of forbearing love that endures all things, that bears all things, that hopes all things, See, 1 Corinthians talks about this kind of love. When you have this kind of unconditional forbearance, and then when you widen your love to include even your enemies, you know what you're doing? You're not being a wallflower. You're doing something actually very different. You're going to war. You see, every time Jesus healed someone of diseases, he went to war. Against who? against the devil and the brokenness of the world that the devil had kind of catalyzed. When Jesus raised someone from death, he won a battle against death and against the one who has the reign of death, the devil. Every time he freed someone from demon possession, he won a battle against the devil and his servants. And every time Jesus forgave someone of their sins, he took the shackles off that the devil used to manipulate people the shackles of their sin and guilt. Don't you see? Don't you see in the gospel who your actual enemies are? They're not people who don't agree with you. Your actual enemies are sin, disease, death, and the one who lies behind them, the devil. People aren't your enemies. They might be tools, but they are actually not your real enemy. The real battle, the real enemy, is against the spiritual forces of evil. 
in the heavenly realms that we cannot see but lie all around us. So every time you forgive, every time you forbear, you win a battle. Every time you turn the other cheek, you win a battle against the true enemy and the reign of retaliation and anger and vengeance that is the old winter, the old world, the old way, the demonic way. And you bear witness to the truth and power of the true king and you wage his war of love and forgiveness and peace against the old way and the old reign. You bring the future into the present. You bring the kingdom of God into the kingdom that we inhabit. You bring the ethics of heaven and the heavenly realm with invading power into the ethics of this earth. And you bring healing and hope and love and you break the cycles of anger and vengeance and retaliation. You wage war by making peace. You win battles by turning the other cheek. Can we do it? Yeah, we can. But we need three things. We need, firstly, to experiencing, experience the forgiving power of Jesus over our sin and our anger and our desire for justice and retaliation. So if you haven't come to Jesus, you need to come to him. Invite him into your life. Ask Jesus to break these cycles in your heart. I needed to. I was so filled with these cycles. And it was only through coming to Jesus that I broke their power. But I still needed to come to him again and again. And so I ask you to do that. Come to him wherever you are in your journey of faith. Secondly, ask for his spirit to empower and take over you. Ask for the spirit of Jesus who has this power to come inside of you and to give you this power. It's only the spirit of Jesus. Thirdly, ask for wisdom from the people of faith around you how to apply it. I can't tell you every single situation. There's probably going to be questions filling up the Q&A. What about this situation? I don't have all the wisdom for all the situations you're in. We need to work that out together. So it's good to ask. But also ask leaders. Ask seasoned leaders. Find out how in community and the Spirit of God and the Word of God. Let the Spirit of Jesus and the grace of Jesus flowing into you give you the power to live this kind of life. You can break the cycle. You can start to bear witness to the kingdom. You can wage war by making peace. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and I praise you. And I ask now for your wisdom and your grace to come into us, to fill us, and for your spirit to empower us to face these moments of manipulation and power and oppression with your grace and your forbearance. Help us to love this deeply and to love this widely so we may bear witness to this one beautiful human man who is also God, Jesus Christ, and to the kingdom he's bringing in for Christ's sake and his glory.